0: Good afternoon and welcome, Celia. Thank how are you doing today?
1: I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me on.
0: Very- no problem at all. You're very, very welcome. Um, so I tend to pass straight over to to the guest to share a bit about your your own kind of um, your own background and and kind of how you've come to where where you are now, and we'll kind of steer through the the conversation mm-hmm. that way.
1: So my name is Celia and I am the co-founding director of the Disability Policy Centre so what we do is we work directly with government um, policy leaders at a local and international level to implement new policies and amend existing legislations Um, and, and the purpose for doing this is to put accessibility and disability kind of at the front of the agenda it's very much been an afterthought for a very long time um and this is something that we're we're aiming to correct is is improving the consultation with disabled people and recognizing as a country that one in five people who live here are disabled in in some way or another whether that's um for a shorter period of time or for a lifetime whatever it may be to make sure that those people are included in the conversation and my I suppose my motivation or or how I've ended up at this place is, so I was born with something called Lowes-Death syndrome. It's very weird and wonderful. Nobody's ever heard of it. Um, You know, that's a whole nother conversation about what it's like to live with a rare illness that nobody's ever heard of before. Um, And throughout my life, you know, I've witnessed firsthand and experienced firsthand how the system isn't working properly and where we need to be looking at the amendments that we need to be making and how going through your life I've I've kind of lived on both sides of the argument I suppose I've had a I started off as having an invisible disability and and as I've got older it's progressed into being visible so I've lived on both sides of the argument and both sides of the argument are, are having the same problems and different problems and it's something that we need to be paying attention to if we look at the diversity and inclusion conversation at the moment it's it's amazing to see how far social movements have come talking about gender and identity and race and religion what I, what I want to see is disability being up there in that conversation, because at the moment we're being a little bit left behind. And the reasoning for that is, is completely multifaceted, but it's, it's 2022 and I think we can't claim ignorance anymore and we can't claim lack of understanding anymore. Being disabled is the only identification characteristic, if you will, that you can enter and leave at any point in your life and it can affect you at any point in your life. So it should be a bigger part of conversation than it currently
0: is. Mm. And that, as you get older, you're more more likely to exactly. to experience it um, in whatever facet that 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 might be.
1: Exactly, we we've got an aging population, and uh, you know most people when they reach elderly age will experience some kind of disability, whether that's neurological through awful illnesses such as dementia, or whether that be reduced mobility and and trying to navigate a new way of life of living in a way you've not previously lived and what I don't want to see is is people being missed out of the conversation. And I feel like that's currently what's happening. And when consultation is happening about disability, we have to be incredibly attentive to the fact that disability is very beautifully and infinitely diverse. And when we are doing cons- consultancy and when we are, Opening up that conversation for disabled people, we have to make sure that everybody in the disability spectrum is included from mental health all the way through to whatever it may be a, a physical disability, a neurodiverse, dis- whatever it is everybody has a right to have their opinion heard and, and have a seat at the table.
0: And feel that they're able to as well. Exactly. And uh, one of the things that, that I've experienced directly, so I've lived with um, a recurrent depressive order uh, for as long as I know, really. Um, it, it kind of came through very obviously in the past kind of five or so years. Um, but actually looking back, that's something that's been a constant and it's linked to me experiencing pain, which is linked to mm-hmm. my physical disability. But then my, my wife is also fairly heavily dyslexic and one of the things that that I've realised by having that relationship is that everyone is very, very different. But also, some of the core experiences that you go through around confidence, around feeling able to speak up, and being um, being kind of pushed forward to speak up. Maybe it's maybe it's my age group. Um, maybe it's it's slightly improved now. I, I don't know the answer to that, but going back to to our childhoods, that wasn't the case mm-hmm. like for her with, with dyslexia. She went to very, very good schools, private schools. They missed it. Mm-hmm. And then when they did find it, find it out, it was, oh, well, no, you're stupid. Yeah. And it's like, well, no, <laughs> mm-hmm. she's really not. She's extremely talented. Um, and an, an incredible woman, obviously I'm biased, but, mm-hmm. um, she really is. But, sadly she's not got the confidence because of that that kind of upbringing so i think there's a huge piece around um around being able to to kind of speak up and and people like you kind of setting the scene for that i think is a, a really important uh important cause
1: thank um, you
0: to, to be behind
1: i i think it's so important and and the reason i do what i do i suppose is because I didn't feel like I had that, and I know we we've, you know, just touched on there about generational differences, but I think we are moving in the right direction in terms of social progression, but there is still entrenched within our society unconscious ableism and unconscious yeah. biases. I think we have reached a point now where we are eradicating the majority of direct discrimination, so by that I mean tangible things where someone is actively disliking you or hating on you because of your disability i think you know that very much still happens but a majority of the the ableist behavior that disabled people are facing now is happening unconsciously the unconscious bias of like you touched on there your wife going through life feeling like you know she was stupid or she wasn't worthy because that's how society views dyslexia or for example you know Another one that I always I always sort of say is is the laziness bias of you know why would I why would I select you to work for my company you're probably going to be off doing doctor's appointments you're going to probably be off doing that you're probably going to be sick all the time and it's not someone actively hating on me because I'm disabled it's somebody's unconscious bias of how they perceive me as a disabled person which I is a massive barrier to to our progression and and what I try and do is is paint a picture of saying. I may be disabled, I may live a completely abnormal life, you know, I don't eat or drink anything, I my mobility is pretty limited, and my life is not normal by all definitions of normal, but what is norma- normality anyway? It's, it's a social construct, and it's so entrenched within our society, and it's about actively showing people I'm not going out there to be a leader or, you know, to set an example. What I'm doing is I'm going out there to to break down that bias and say, actually, I am doing it and, and and here's proof that I am doing it and everything you may perceive of me is incorrect. Yes, I do have more doctor's appointments. Yes, I do have days where I can't get out of bed and, and that's where I'm staying. But that's because you believe that a working week is nine to five when actually, you know, sometimes I work on a Sunday, sometimes I work at six in the morning, sometimes I work at 11 o'clock at night. Yeah, this social construct of normality is Is putting that massive barrier in front of us and we need to be working on how people perceive us. And, you know, disability does not equal inability or incapability, but that's still how we're viewed. So I think there has been progression, but we've still got a lot of unconscious behavior to to tackle and break down.
0: Yeah. And I was, I was really struck by um, my last couple of weeks in the firm I was in, just just prior to to um starting a new place which was about a month ago um or so and there was a a, a, a dni um kind of webinar style of style of thing with uh, the kind of head of uh, uh, of of the the area um you know sh- setting the scene for all the wonderful things that that were, that were being done in this space um and we got about I don't know, 80% through the, the, the kind of allotted time for it. And I sent a message through just saying, I don't know if I've missed it because I, I did have to take a call at, at, at part of it. So I could have genuinely missed it. Um, but you've not said anything about disability. No. And funnily enough, it was because they hadn't thought that it needed to be talked about. It was the, the race discussion and the gender discussion they'd also missed out the LGBTQ uh, work that they've, they've been doing, um, which is, is equally bad. Mm-hmm. But I think it is a, uh, maybe it's, it's how society views it at the moment in, in that race has, in particular, race has really seen um, a huge positive progression. Mm-hmm. Still loads of progression there to be done, don't get me wrong, but it's seen a, a, a really big positive shift in work at least. And same with with the kind of gender piece, there is definitely a lot more awareness, at the very least, of of the kind of biases that are in place that lead to not having the same um, amount of of female leaders as as there are that as there are male, um, particularly in some areas. Uh, me coming from banking, it was very heavily uh, male in senior roles, so they they've been getting a lot of that attention. Yeah. But to then just not think you need to talk about disability, um, it just reaffirmed entirely why I was leaving the organisation. Ultimately, yeah,
1: completely. And it's what you're saying in the example that you're giving is is unfortunately all too common. And you know we all know that what sexism is, we all know what racism is. It's it's part of our. Everyday vocabulary and understanding, and what we're taught and what we're brought up with, what's okay and what's not. Fantastic. It's amazing as a society that we are improving so much. Like you said, we still have a long way to go, but we're getting there. But ableism isn't yet part of mainstream conversation. I recently ran a poll asking if people actually knew what the definition of ableism was and 60% of my polling audience didn't know the definition for ableism and that's quite shocking that people don't it's not yet part of mainstream vocabulary and you know getting a bit nerdy and getting a bit academic on the, in this perspective if you look at the timelines of social progressions the women's movement the the pride movement the black lives matter movement We've seen such progression over a long period of time and people have fought for a long period of time and they are finally getting there. If you look at the disability movement, really we're very much in our infancy compared to other social movements. In the 60s and 70s, we had a big kick-up and, and people started speaking out. And you know, I wish I could thank those individuals that, that started the conversate properly started the conversation. But it's because ableist behavior was accepted for so long as normality. And because we're in our infancy as a social construct and a social movement, we still have the same individuals present in our society that are in those leadership positions that, you know, started their lives when the disability movement hadn't properly kicked off yet. and how you make a social movement successful is is allyship and we haven't yet reached that point where we have that mass allyship and that's you know our next tick box of of how we can push this further is quite often and it's almost a criticism of the community that we're both in is the fact that but we're very good at talking amongst ourselves about the problems and about what's going on and about how we feel and how about we're treated But we haven't yet properly broken through that arena barrier to have the conversation with everybody else that doesn't yet understand. And as we've entered into 2022 and this cancel culture, you know, I can see where it's come from. But what we're doing and we have to be very careful as a society is not foster an environment where people feel like they're not able to ask questions for fear of being ostracised and cancelled and their career is over, that if they're in a leadership position and they don't understand ableism, we are fostering an environment where that individual isn't able to now talk about it and and go into a meeting and say, I actually don't understand, because they'll be absolutely shunned and God knows what. And we're still at a position, a recent report that the Disability Policy Centre did was we looked at representation within our policy leaders and we found that less than 2% of our members of parliament identify as disabled, that we know of that have declared that they have a disability, that's less than 2%. And then we look at the population of disabled people and we're over 20%, there's a 19% disparity there, which means that disabled people aren't engaging as much as they should be in the conversation because we're not able to. If you had a women's select committee in 2022, we would not dare appoint a middle-aged white man to lead a women's select committee but we still have people that aren't disabled leading disability agenda. That's fine. It's not about positive discrimination. It's not about, you know, removing those individuals and putting someone that's not qualified for the role in. It's about saying, why haven't we got disabled people there? Where are we going wrong along that journey of progression that disabled people aren't able to have those positions yet? And it's because of all the inaccessibilities in their way. And I think that's a massive topic of conversation is, being aware of the fact that we are in our infancy in terms of social movement. But again, in the same breath, it's 2022, not 1922, when women are fighting for the right to vote. We should know better now. And this should be a quicker process than it has been for other social movements. And I think that's something that's really worth bearing in mind when people use it as an excuse. It's not an excuse, it's a justification as to what's happening. In 2022, it's not an excuse anymore to say, well, you know, these things do take time. They do but we know better now and we shouldn't be repeating the mistakes we've made over the last 200 years.
0: It's I, I, I kind of smile there because one of the things that I was told, so I, I ended up having a meeting with the, the, the head of um, the part of the, the bank that I was working in um, and the disability, well, the DNI rather, um, uh, lead um, for, for the same area. And one of the things they said was, you know, these things take time. Mm. So I asked how much time? No answer. And then I just followed it up with um what's an acceptable amount of time? Mm. And again, no answer. Um and I kinda went into it and I dazzled them slightly with figures and and used a lot of the information that's out there that that I know um you do much better than me in terms of sharing on, on, on LinkedIn and, and sites. Um, but there's a lot of information out there, but it's amazing how little people understand that are in those leadership positions. Um, mean, one of the stats that that I was, um, that I was kind of pulling out was, um, one was the around the cost of, of living and and how that is set to increase for, for people with disabilities, but also, um, the uh because samsung um uk that had done a, a bit of research around it basically demonstrating uh, that around about 45 percent of people that with disabilities didn't want to speak up about having mm-hmm. a disability in work for fear that it was going to limit their uh, their career um and they just they just didn't know
1: any of it's, that it's it's incredibly upsetting and I think one of the one of the things that I I kind of champion beyond belief is reclaiming our identity, reclaiming what it means to be disabled. If you look at kind of the history of the language that's been used around disability, obviously, I'm not going to say the words and uh, apply a trigger warning here that when I say the R word and the S word, I think we all know what I'm talking about. Yeah. If you look at the kind of academic history of those words, those were medical terminologies which were used to to categorise disabled people who had a physical disability and those words were twisted by society and taken away from their medical meanings and used as an ableist slur so that when you know, our medical terminology and our medical understanding developed and those individuals that had previously been categorised altogether started being separated out into, into different health conditions, society carried forward those slurs. And then when the word disability became more adopted as, as a wider figurehead of identity and we were all categorised together under one figurehead, It was was a word that was used to describe us. We weren't describing ourselves as disabled. Society labelled us as disabled. We didn't pick that identity. We were given it. And so what's happened is that over so many years and, and decades of ableist attitude towards us, what it means to be disabled, that identity word, adopted how society viewed us, not how we viewed ourselves. And now we are reaching a point where... I encourage everyone to take back that identity and and use it with pride and say yes I am disabled you labeled me as disabled I didn't label myself that I just labeled myself as having a health condition and you know a majority of the population will have a health condition at some point in their lives but you took that identity away from me so part of the kind of disability movement is reclaiming the pride in that word and and changing the meaning of it and changing Changing how I view my own identity, which you gave me, I didn't give myself, and actually having proud in that and saying, okay, if you label me disabled, I'm gonna tell you what it means to be disabled. You aren't gonna tell me, as an individual that has no lived experience or understanding what my life is like, I'm going to tell you what my strengths are. You aren't going to tell me what my weaknesses are. Because it's very difficult to, especially as a child, if you're if you you have your disability as a child, to constantly have it rammed down your throat, how society views you and that there's something wrong with you destroys your confidence and it carries through into adult life. You know, you were talking about your wife earlier about being dyslexic and it's stayed with her and it does stay with you, which is why it's so important that we look at the language that we're using and and the connotations of the word disabled and thinking about how we're using that word because it has a lot more impact on us than I think some of us realise.
0: Yeah um i am so i've just turned 37 so it's my birthday uh monday just gone
1: happy birthday for monday <laughs>
0: thank you uh best day of the year halloween so you know that probably tells a lot you.
1: i can beat you my birthday's christmas day so i can beat oh, really you on special birthdays
0: <laughs> yeah okay you might win that one <laughs> um but it's taken me up until this year really um, for me to even think about using the word disability. Mm. Um, and I, if I look back, and it's taken a lot of therapy um, and a lot of kind of time reflecting and understanding myself, but if I look back, I've gone out of my way to hide the fact that I'm different, um, not necessarily Better or not necessarily worse, but I'm different. You know, the the condition that I was born with—it's got a lovely long name: um, Congenital um, Talipes equinovirus, which is commonly known as 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 club feet. I had a really severe um, uh, version of it. There are about a hundred versions we think now, um, and it's got some links into genetic conditions, so it can it can kind of um, cross uh boundaries uh, to a certain extent and i had surgeries before i was one year old uh, multiple surgeries on, on my ankles to try and reshape them because i wish I wouldn't have walked <laughs> and then i went through life thinking oh i'm, I'm not that good at, at rugby i'm not that good at basketball i'm not that good at football etc and sports in particular um because i couldn't physically keep up which it wasn't as fast my my lower limb development is very different to even anybody else with talipes because that's the nature of that condition it depends on how good your surgeon was and um, mine was fortunately very good so i had a pretty good outcome but also how severe it was what type it was etc cetera, etc cetera. and much like disabled people in general you won't find two disabled people that are identical because everybody's that little bit different but that's then gone through my entire life of me having this in my head that I'm not as good.
1: And, and that, that's just that's, not true. It's, it's a classic example of internalized ableism and it's something that I talk a lot about is, you know, in this conversation already, we've already painted a picture about what ableism is. I think actually one of the biggest perpetrators of ableism is disabled people. And we're not ableist towards each other we're ableist towards ourselves of you know i'll give you a couple of examples of internalized ableism behavior hiding your disability constantly proving that you're you are disabled enough to receive help and when you're filling out your pit forms and filling out your blue badge forms you go above and beyond because you're terrified that someone's not going to believe that you are disabled enough for help yeah um constantly doubting yourself hiding your disability and that's not to say that as disabled people we are ableist in our nature. It's to say societal cons- constructs have affected us so badly that we have unconsciously processed things that have been said to us directly, th- ways that we've been made to feel. Um, I resonate with you on the sport front. Was always the slowest. Always, you know, can't run for anything. Always came last in sports day in in the in the running department. But we've absorbed that societal impression of us and. It takes a lot of mental training to, to start breaking that down. And I don't know if actually, you know, I'm I'm 25 and I'm still battling with it a lot of, of constantly doubting myself and, and looking at my peers and thinking, God, you're off doing that. And I can't I can't even get on. You know, you're off in Bali. I can't get on a plane ride. Am I going to stuck me stuck in England forever? Just living my, you know, miserable weather life, all of these kind of things. You know, I, can't, I can never move country. I need the NHS, the American healthcare system won't fund me. But I'm constantly battling with myself whilst also trying to battle against the world. And it's exhausting.
0: It really is.
1: It's, it's so exhausting to, to do it that the challenges that we face as disabled people are not just physical barriers and they're not just the chronic pain or the fatigue or whatever it may be, it's everything else that comes along with it. And it is absolutely exhausting and can be incredibly self destroying. But the best way to to kind of start addressing it is is, is identifying the behaviours that you're doing, and how you are talking to yourself. And the best example of a, thera- a therapist ever gave me was, would you talk to your friend like that if, the, if they came to you and said, you know, I'm in chronic pain? Would you say that to somebody else? No, you wouldn't. Why do would you say it to yourself? And it's because society has taught us that what we're saying is correct and it's not.
0: Yeah. I, I, I had a, a very long debate with my therapist because I refused to admit <laughs> <laughs> I was talking to myself in a, in a bad way. Um, and I, I, I was literally doing everything, and this is a, a, from a person that you know, used to debate um, to a pretty good level and, 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 and did a, a lot lot of kind of fun things in that side. So I'm, I'm pretty good at forming an argument um, and and knowing each side of it so that I can win that argument. And I was throwing every single thing that I could at that argument just because I didn't want to admit to myself mm-hmm. that the way I was speaking to myself and my internalised voice, be it images or be it, be it words, um, was was not helpful. It was, in fact, it was a very negative experience.
1: Exactly, and I think you know if you took an individual, for example, that wasn't proud of their race or they weren't proud to be a woman or they weren't proud to even be a man or they weren't proud to be a lesbian. It's it's a massive conversation in society that's happening at the moment and it's amazing to see that that, you know, it's received so much support from people, both within those communities and allyship. But if you say the statement, I'm not proud to be disabled, no one bats an eyelid. No, no one goes oh my god like this is this is really bad we need to be talking about this we need to be addressing it and the question is, if is anything why
0: if anything what they'll turn around and say is oh i'm sorry you feel like that
1: yes sympathy get- It's the sympathy card instantly yeah. yeah being treated you know if i had a pound coin for every time someone spoke to me like i was a child yeah. i'd be a very wealthy woman that's that let's just be said is that people feel like they can talk to me like i'm not. A grown adult and I when when that happens I have to think very carefully about my response because I also recognize that there are individuals who may look a lot older than their mental capacity actually is so I'd be very careful in my response I don't sit there and say you know do I look like I'm a child because that's ableist behavior again towards my own community but I sit there and say I'm not going to get cross at you but please speak to me like the adult that I am, I, I have done nothing to demonstrate to you that I am not mentally the age of which you perceive me, but it's because people see us as they constantly need help. They need they need cuddling, they need looking after. But in the same breath, you're quite happy to talk about how much our benefits and our PIP system and our blue badge schemes are an annoyance to you. And they drain the system. And we take so much from the NHS and we don't give it back in taxation because apparently none of us work. Mm -hmm. And it's you can't sit on both sides of the argument, either pick an argument, (laughs) pick the wrong side and we'll educate you or pick the right side and be an ally towards us. Don't teeter on this fence because both sides are incredibly patronising. That neither is the right side to be on.
0: Definitely, and it, it's it's a huge a huge irony. I mean, we're just coming off the back of Purple Tuesday, which is all about the the significant um, value that the purple pound or the disabled pound um, can add to to society. And uh, I I don't particularly like the phrasing around it, if I'm honest. Mm. Um, I think it's a bit clumsy, um, partly maybe that's because of kind of where it originally came from, that it was, it was a kind of governmental piece. Um, and I tend to rally against anything that's, that, that, that's, um, that's kind of government based doesn't matter who's in just, just, um, (laughs) how I am as a, as an individual, um, partly because I'm always wanting it to be better. Mm. But there is a significant amount um, of value that we add financially to um, to the the UK economy uh, in particular, but to the global economy. It's not our fault, though, that people aren't tapping into that.
1: Exactly. It's a uh, you know I think we all know the the statistics. It's it's billions of pounds, mm. and it's. of our GDP that we're losing by not tapping into the disabled market. And it's weird, isn't it? Because I remember when I got my prescription exemption card, Mm -hmm. and I suppose this is an example of eternalized ableism that I felt bad for claiming my prescription exemption because I thought, well, you know, the money I'm spending 90 pounds a month on my prescriptions is going back into the NHS. And that's a really good thing that I felt bad about it. And I thought, no, I, I should just keep paying. I shouldn't take the help. And that's really shocking. And I felt the same way when I started claiming PIP as well. I, like, yeah. I instantly went in my mind, there's, there's people that are worse than me that aren't getting on the system. Let them have it, let them have it. And it doesn't work like that. The system is there to support us so that we can go and do the things that we want to do. I think people are very, not shy, but aren't very open about claiming PIP. And mm. because they think, People are going to go, oh, well, they're on benefits. You know, what are they? What are they contributing to society? Um, you know, their tax doesn't cancel it out. And I think it's a prime example of how, you know, I claim PIP so that I can go and spend that. I'm not sitting on it, hoarding it, getting ready to build a kitchen extension. I spend that money. It's going back into the economy for things that I need. And I think about all the things that I wish existed, but aren't in the kind of mainstream shopping system that are so out of price point we were talking about wheelchairs earlier and about how expensive they are and it's 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 an argument that we can have until the cows come home about the purple pound and about how we should be tapping into those markets and how expensive it is to be disabled and heading into a cost of living crisis you know it's it's scary it's it's very scary i have I, i run blood infusions every day that requires a pump you know, mm-hmm. I, I have a lot of chargeable equipment that I have to use every single day. What am I going to do if there are blackouts? What am I going to do? I I need to. That's the only way I can eat and drink is is through my veins. And if I can't charge my pump, I can't eat and drink. And I remember speaking to my home care company, and they said, "Well, you know, we'll send you backups and all of this kind of stuff." And I'm sort of sat there saying, "But I still have to charge those backups." Yeah. What are we going to do? You know, switching our power off for two hours. It takes my pump twelve hours to charge. You know, you're really eating into my time here, and it's slightly terrifying at the moment. It is really scary.
0: Well, and and yeah. there are there are people that literally will will yeah.
1: die damn yeah. quickly,
0: yeah, because they re- are fully reliant on breathing yeah. apparatus, as mm-hmm. an example. And <laughs> I think that. The biggest frustration i've got with with the kind of current um and kind of past kind of five ten years of government is that they haven't had that conversation or certainly don't appear to have had that conversation around what's going to happen for people that rely on electricity in their household to literally stay alive
1: mm-hmm.
0: so we're not talking about yeah, they're kind of horrific um, uh, examples of people living without heating and, and everything, which is bad enough. But to then literally you can't, for in your case, if you if you haven't got your 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 equipment charged, then
1: you... you I, I will die. You, 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 you will die. Not, yeah, like there's no beating around the bush. I will die because I can't charge my equipment. And I think, you know, this is by no means am am i setting disabled people apart here and being like god no it's gonna be really bad for us and you guys are gonna be fine it's going it will be horrific for everybody everybody. if that happens but i think it's consistent across the board that we have to make sure that when we're having conversations that involve how we live as a society disabled people at at that conversation and going back to that statistic i mentioned earlier of less than two percent Currently, we're not at that conversation and it's going to take years to be in the position where we are. So let's make sure that as policy leaders, we're using our initiative to go out and, and get that extra consultation and have those extra conversations and make sure that if you don't have any experience of, of being disabled, you know, whatever that may be, like we said at the beginning, disability is infinitely diverse. I've got no idea what it's like to live with a vision impairment. So if I'm writing a piece you know, that mentions vision impairments, I'm going to talk to someone because I don't understand what it's like as well. If I can yeah. do it, you can do it. I think that's the kind of the common thread is that just getting eight people in a wheelchair together in a room to talk about accessibility, tick, yes, great job, amazing. It's the start of the conversation, but that's not effective consultation about what it's like to be disabled because I think the current statistic is only about 8% of disabled people are actually wheelchair users. They so really you know, let, let's not tick that as, a, as an exercise complete.
0: Right. So we went away um, last week to uh, Cornwall and Devon, which lovely part of the world. Um, and I predominantly use, mainly because I haven't been able to get a wheelchair yet, because there's a ridiculously long um, waiting list just to get seen. And then obviously you've then got to go through the process. And then it takes... You know, a month, two months for the chairs we made. So it's not, it's not quick. So I use crutches to get around. It's not ideal, but it's the only way that I can get around. And around here, with with kind of regular stops and everything, I can kind of, kind of get from from A to B. Albeit, I suffer as a result of it because it's extremely painful. Um, A good example being we went to uh, Warwick Castle about a month or so ago and it took me about 45 minutes to get from the entrance to the stage where they were doing the birds show, in which time my wife and son had seen the entire park um, and were then ready to kind of sit down and and watch the very cool, uh, I would say, um, bird show. And then I then had to get up and and. And start my walk back because by the time I was then going to get back we were going to be going and yeah so it, it's 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 part of that but going down to Cornwall and and Devon was just another another world entirely um so everything was was hilly because it's by the coast and you can't solve that problem that is that's just the literally the lay of the land <laughs> um, but you, what you can solve is ensuring that there is available parking that's it, it, actually in an accessible it, place.
1: It, it's it's basic things, mm-hmm. and a, a sort of tagline I always like to throw in there is: "Let's be proactive, not reactive." We yeah. should be doing these things from the point of design, because then what you have, what happens is an individual such as yourself isn't able to park. You know, you make a complaint and you start the process of trying to get it amended then it does cost money, then it is a lengthy process, then you've got lay of the land changes. If you'd have just done it instantly, we wouldn't be in this position. And also, you know, it's not just you, it's, it's everybody else that's trying to access the facilities that can't, they're not able to. Yeah. How have we still not reached a point where, from the point of design, we are thinking about disabled people, we have British standards in place, but again... They're not mandatory. They're strongly advised. I, yeah. Please don't ask me to recite which British standard it was, because obviously it's all numbers, and my uh, number skills are very limited in that department. <laughs> but they're not mandatory. They're, they're a strong advice, and people just take one look at it and think, it's going to cost me extra, I'm not doing it. But actually, money, if we look at it from a purely economical perspective, the money you're losing by not having disabled people able to access your facilities it's probably a lot more than it was to just do it initially and people, people well, don't understand it and that's the I, purple pound in a nutshell
0: it, in, entirely i mean so we were in saint ives and we'd we'd done what for me is a lot of walking for a normal person it wouldn't be but for for me it was a lot of walking um we we're kind of regular stops and all that sort of stuff but we went into a few different places kind of along the way and i couldn't get around them. one, because in, in one, it was, there was just, just eight steps to, to kind of go up, um, somebody that, that, that is using crutches to get around eight steps is a lot, mm-hmm. um, to actually get in and, and go. So we, so I didn't pay. So that, that's immediately a cost that, that's been missed. And then, then getting back to, where the car park was, um I went. I went. What should have been a shortcut it turned out not to be in the end. But I was in so much pain by that point that I then didn't go into the Tate um, to the music. One of well, the museums down there. Again, uh, that was a loss in income. We didn't get any lunch there because I was just too exhausted and in too much pain for us to stay there. So again, that's uh, for the whole family. That was a. a a loss, we then got some down, down the road, but it wasn't in St. Ives. So, very quickly, you can see that that's probably about, let's say, £50. But if that's £50 from every single disabled person that's there every single day of the season, and then probably slightly less in the off season, that's a hell of a lot of money. It's a lot of money. It's an incredible amount of money. Mm. And,
1: you know, if you, if you strip it back as well and remove the Financial element of the conversation, you have to almost, and it's it's quite a, I suppose a, a grounding point to make, and maybe a bit controversial. You also have to question people's moral degradations of how they think it's acceptable to ostracize entire communities of people from being able to participate and have fun and enjoy their lives, and for so long, disability policy and legislation that we're governed by such as the equality act is all about how can disabled people survive how can we get them Mm -hmm. to be alive to get the financial help they need to to function to to just stay at an equilibrium stay at the meniscus of society and actually what i'm saying is and what you're saying is is it's not about surviving it's about thriving we we've established a system of support arguably it does need work i'm definitely not saying it doesn't (laughs) But we, we have established that system and I do recognize my privileges of living in a developed country where I am able to access the medications that I need and the NHS and the wonderful work that they do. But that's, you know, part one of the conversation. Part two of the conversation is right, I'm surviving. Now make me thrive and make me for your own benefit as well. Add value to society and I can do it but we're so stuck in a medical model of disability and, and a social construct and not letting me have that thrive element. And that's what as a community we are striving for now is make me thrive. Let me into the workplace, let me into leisure, let me into entertainment. That's what I, you know, I need in my life. Mm. And that's the conversation that I think is if we look at the kind of going back to the very nerdy academic words, if we look at the social progression, that's where we are now. That that's That's, the key thing at the moment within the disability community is that thriving element that we need to be focused on.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I I have in reality been been pretty lucky with my disability in many ways because up until the last year and a half, two years, most people, unless they kind of you know, were medical in nature and, and kind of understood what they were looking at. most people wouldn't know but from the look um, of me that I was disabled. Um, and that's kind of afforded me certain certain luxuries in life that I don't get or haven't had that constant questioning from people being literally stopped in the street, which is something that, that I've had a lot of recently literally being stopped in the street by a stranger and saying oh what have you done
1: yeah yeah i am um, I've, I've lived on i think i mentioned it at the beginning i've lived on both sides of the conversation i my disability was invisible when i was growing up and it's becoming more and more visible as i get older yeah and my bug bear is, oh you don't look disabled Will you please? (laughs) Please tell me what being disabled looks like because you have a very clear picture in your mind and I know what it is. I know what you're thinking. And how you can think that and have the audacity to say that out loud is is shocking. You know, we would never dare say that about somebody's race or somebody's sexual orientation. So why do we still think it's acceptable to say it about a disabled person and You know, I'm almost, I'm almost one of my own worst enemies is if I'm on public transport and I need to sit down and no one's offering me me their seat, first of all, now I'm annoyed because I think, will you please just, will you get up and move? But if somebody doesn't offer me my seat, offer offer me a seat, I won't ask people to move because I'm terrified that I'm, it's almost like a curse of your own knowledge that I don't want to say to someone, oh, please, could you move? Because I'm disabled and I need to sit down because then yeah. I've just presumed that they're not by the look of them. So we're stuck in this kind of cyclical thing where like, the only solution is if you're not disabled or you know you're feeling okay on that day please will you move for disabled people or if mm-hmm. somebody who asks you to move doesn't look disabled let's not throw the your legs are younger than mine argument out there or oh we've only got two more stops to go you'll be fine please just stop it but it's there's such a uh, A painted picture by society going back to when I was talking about the 60s and 70s and the removal of those medical terminologies that became disability slurs. It's such a stereotype of what being disabled is and looks like a means for your life. And people that think like that, I then give you the statistic and say one in five people. When you're walking down the down the high street, when you're walking through your town or your village or your city or wherever you live do one in five people look like what you think disabled people look like? No, they don't. Mm. And that's not to say that those people don't look good or shouldn't look like that or to put them down in any way and to say, you know, that that's that's not it. Actually, we look more normal and I'm using that in inverted commas because what is normality? But then I just say that to people, do one in five people that you pass on the street look like how you imagine disabled people should look like? No, they don't. No, they don't.
0: Yeah. And then there's the other end of the the kind of spectrum where, and it's always always makes me chuckle slightly. But it's that kind of, oh, you're a hero oh, because you've done something. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: So it's I, good about being a Paralympian.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's many things that I do in my life which I I would like to think are inspirational. Mm-hmm. None of which have got anything to do with my disability a hundred percent a hundred percent when people
1: that's all when people say oh you're really inspiring never know really how to react to that and I always sort of go thank you I think Um, it's always a bit of a you know that's up there with one of the top compliments I never really know how I'm not really good at taking compliments anyway but when someone says that Um, I always get a bit like right okay thank you my (laughs) It's, it's very kind it's very nice it's very lovely people always want to hear compliments about themselves it's it's human nature but then I sit back and think do you think the work that I do is inspiring or do you think I'm inspiring because I do it in despite it that like in, in spite of the fact that I'm disabled like yeah. you're still going in spite of everything or like you're so brave look at what you're achieving despite your disability and I think Right, like, that's no longer a compliment. I, you know, I reject it, take it back, I don't want it. Thank you very much. You know, the intention was there, but take it back. Do you think what I'm doing with my life is inspiring? Or do you think I'm inspiring because I've overcome everything and I'm doing everything in the face of adversity? You know, yes, I am. That that's no way to take away from the fact that some days my biggest achievement is I get out of bed. And I get down on the sofa and I'm just sat on my laptop hunched over doing my work. And for most people, I haven't achieved anything for that day. But for me, that was an achievement because I got up and I did it, even though I wasn't feeling my best. And you know what? Yeah, I do have a lot of adversities to overcome and I have been brave. You know, I've battled against my own mortality for my entire life and I've nearly died God knows how many times. So, yeah, I am brave. But when you're talking about the work I'm doing you're not saying it in the right way and again it's just it's lack of education and I I don't want disabled people to, to listen to this conversation and think actually I am brave for what for for what I'm doing I am I am pushing myself and I am showing up for myself and showing up for other people yes you are but that's coming from another disabled person that you know, has faced similar experiences, maybe not necessarily the same, but I have that empathy towards you because I I know what you you're going through and you you have been through, and I understand the system of adversity. But when it's coming from an able body individual that doesn't have that lived experience, it has that element of being patronising to it, and I don't like it. I don't like it at all. And most people, disabled people, feel like that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the one of the best examples that 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 I've had. Um, so I, 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 in my previous firm in particular, um, did a lot of speaking about mental illness, um, and in particular my own mental illness, um, including the the feelings of of not wanting to be alive, not wanting to have to deal with the pain all the time, um, and you know, getting into an exceptionally bad place where I was um where I was pretty much constantly suicidal despite all the amazing things that that I've got going on and after after I'd kind of to a certain extent got to kind of um terms with that I started doing a variety of events at work including um hosting a a men's um mental health group where we literally just talked openly about um mental illness that that men are going through and we're t- females on talking about their partners and and kind of sharing um kind of good ways of doing things but i then did a national call which was with the the ceo of the of the bank was on was on the course so it was you know it was a, a fairly big deal and i would say 90 percent of the comments that i got were you're so brave mm. so I, why, why am I brave? In, in In what context am I brave? Are you saying that you think I'm going to lose my job? Is that what you're telling me? Are you saying that we work in in a in a culture that would punish you for for talking about about your mental health? Yeah, you know, all these different kind of connotations that to that word of of bravery, to being brave, you have to be overcoming something. Yeah, you have to be overcoming a some form of negative event that that is that is um uh, within your life that's not what i was doing on that call Mm -hmm. i was doing it to allow other people to realize that they can talk about mental illness and like everything else you can talk about disability you can talk about race sexism um you know homophobia all, all these different things. And it's good to talk about them. It's important that we talk about them. I was not doing it because I am brave, because it also suggests that people that don't speak about it or aren't that don't it. follow through with it aren't. And that's just not true.
1: Exactly. And I think a prime example was the London 2012 Paralympics. Mm. And there was a lot of controversy around the branding that was promoted. And it was a amazing event, it, you know, it put disability at center stage and it was the largest Paralympics there has ever been. And it was, yeah. it received almost equal watch rates to to the Olympics did. And it was amazing to see that as a disabled person and, and controversial. I know lots of people loved the branding and, you know, so this is entirely speaking on my own opinion here but I did not like the branding of superhuman. And that was the word that was pushed everywhere. That because somehow you were a Paralympian, you were better than me because you were doing something with your disability and I wasn't. And you'd made that step up and that's in no way to take away from those achievements of people like Ellie Simmons who are incredible and will always be incredible. And she's amazing on Strictly at the moment. But it painted this picture of, well, if you're not a Paralympian and you're not disabled, do I not am I not superhuman? Am I, am I not do I not get that that accolade? If that's the word we're using to describe high achieving disabled people, and no one's using that word to describe me, am, am I not good enough? Am I not, you know, should I be doing more? And it really made me doubt myself. And and 2012 was at the same time as when I, you know, was starting to explore my identity as a disabled mm. person. And it was incredibly damaging but then off the back of it we had the last leg on channel four and you know I watch it to this day and I think it's brilliant because it put that humor into disability and it put that spin-off but again that's an entire conversation about disability and humor and whether it's acceptable or not if you're not a disabled individual but it was that branding of superhuman affected a lot of people in a very very negative way and it made people feel incredibly degraded that they didn't fall into that bracket but then on the flip side of that it was incredible because what they doing what they were doing was incredible and they were pushing their bodies to places that science didn't think their bodies could go and they were proving people wrong and that was incredible but on the flip side of it it was very damaging so you know I fall on both sides of the argument almost it'd be interesting to kind of hear how you felt about that kind of superhuman branding
0: for me it was it was a a time where I hadn't really thought about my physical limitations as being anything but normal, so I just hadn't I hadn't thought of myself at all up to that point as being disabled in any way shape or form, and that's not because I wasn't because I was as much disabled back then as I <laughs> am now it's the it was the mindset that that I had To a certain extent that I've been brought up with, um, not not wrongly at all from my parents, and that they always wanted me to be able to do everything. So I was always given the opportunities to do everything. But I'd always been the one that was then having to figure out ways of adapting, of doing things a little bit differently so I could do those things. And that was just natural. That was just something that I think particularly people that have been uh, they either had it from a very young age or, or that were born with um, their disabilities is something you become extremely good at is that mm-hmm. adaptation through life yeah. um, charm, to a certain yeah. extent to your detriment I would say um, but also if you think about work actually it's one of the huge things that disabled people can bring to the table is knowing how to to overcome things because you you do on a daily basis mm-hmm. um and then the kind of twenty twelve um, Olympics kind of came through, and I was—I was, what was I doing then? I was at uni, or I ju- or I was just um, probably just quite kind of working in law, um, not having the best time in the world um, uh, in 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 the profession. Um, and there was these people on TV that were, you know incredible mm-hmm. doing things that i cannot do um and that, this is something that i've always struggled with um and it's that kind of feeling of i'm not disabled enough um really but adding then that branding of that they're superhuman um like and it achievable
1: status
0: exactly so i i immediately then discounted myself from any type of of sporting um uh kind of event when actually i i would qualify um for um i mean i wouldn't do the running events because it's just far too painful but i would qualify um for the Par- for the paralympics from a physical standpoint um i'm currently trying to get um a yes or no on whether i qualify um, for power weightlifting because I, I enjoy weightlifting it's not a quick process no. um yeah. but you know it's taken me what are we 10 years on it's taken me 10 years to kind of get to the point where i think actually that that is me um does that mean i'm superhuman or not i don't really care if i'm completely honest I don't think it's the right wording to use. I don't particularly think, I think it was very strong branding in the sense of getting people behind it. Um, So at the time, but I don't think it was useful branding from a disabled perspective. Um, But it has taken me that long to rationalize the fact that I am actually disabled enough. Um, And that actually there isn't such a thing as being disabled enough. The fact that you are disabled means that there are, differences in in how you experience life compared to whatever the norm might well be
1: exactly completely and i think it's very easy to define ourselves medically sometimes yeah. and one of my absolute bugbears is you know if on an application form do you identify as disabled yes please select one from the following drop down list of of disabilities and then i'm sort of sat there playing a game of top trumps with myself and saying right you know which one am i going to go for here which one am i likely to need the most help with and i'm going to select that as as my option and my identity and the fact that things like that are still happening where I've spent so long battling with myself like you have about am I disabled enough to to wear this identity and be a part of this, you know, hypothetical community. And now you're asking me which one of my conditions is, <laughs> is the dominant one. And that's, you know, and to top it all off, sometimes you don't even have it in there. You don't have, you know, long-term chronic whatever it may be. Yeah. And I just think, you know, all of these things have just been if you are asking that question I want to know why you're asking it. Are you asking it because you want to collect data on me? Or are you asking it because you genuinely are using it as a purpose that you're then going to contact me afterwards and say, how can we help? Is there anything else that you need or anything we can do from our end or any improvements that you can make? But when it's that single drop option, I think you you just want to know. You're just being nosy. You're not actually using it proactively in any way. It's, it's to cover your own ass, excuse the French, if something happens to me in the workplace, you know, she did say right at the beginning, we were aware of it and, you know, it's in our contract or whatever. But it's that lack of willingness to understand and adapt and make adjustments for people. That adjustment shouldn't be this big thing of money and oh my God, we've got to do this and we've got to pull this HR team, we've got to pull in employee services, we've got to blah, 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 blah it should just be something that we're just asking people, not just disabled people, everybody. You know, are you a parent with with a young child and, you know, you may have to, at the drop of a hat, go and collect them from school or nursery or childcare or, you know, are are you a pregnant individual? You know, how can we support you as a company? It shouldn't just be reserved for disabled people, but because it is reserved for us, it's now become this big thing, like this big dirty word of like, oh yeah, the new person, she's, she's disabled. And sort of whisper it. And it's like, nobody mention it, but just just to let you guys know. And I think, right, okay, glad to know where I stand, that I'm already, you think of me down here, that's fantastic, thank you very much. Purely because you know nothing about my life, you know nothing about my disability, you know nothing about my experiences, but you've presumed that you know everything about me and that actually in one, reg- you know, and I say this over and over again, I am more than just being disabled. My identity, you know, I have a personality and I have things about me that is more than just my physical health condition or mental health conditions. There is more to me than, than than meets the eye, so to speak. But people can't see that. They can't see it. That that's my dominant trait, and that is the label I will carry with me for the rest of my life.
0: And it it's such such a missed opportunity because <laughs> I mean, I, I I look back and and when I was in my, my previous firm. Know, they they hadn't i don't think ever asked the question um up until this year um and there was a big drive to get data and it was just data um they did try and badge it up as oh well this is the opportunity to do something as well so to, to get adjustments put into place because i've never asked for adjustments in my entire um in, in my entire life really um let alone career never asked for them um apart from possibly one uh one set of exams where i was in a car crash got hit by a lorry on a roundabout um and my arm was in a in a cast so I, I i think i got a, a computer to do the the um the typing rather than writing because i just couldn't couldn't do it um but beyond that never asked for anything probably should have is the reality but you know we live and learn and and that's what I'm much better at doing now but even after disclosing that um I am I am disabled um that I, ha- I had to tick one of the boxes um so I had to decide which one to fit in which was frustrating enough because well there's aspects of it that are musculoskeletal. there's aspects of it that our mobility there's aspects of it that are mental health there's aspects of it that are energy training. it's like i just i'm disabled what why what do you need to know like it, the most frustrating part was that after all of that faff and it was a faff of me having to go on put all this information on nothing happened
1: exactly
0: so what's the point
1: no, and I, I, it's so frustrating to feel, and I think disabled people feel this as, as a common thought thread, no matter what your disability is or what category, and I use that in adverted commas that you fall into, that it's, we're constantly talking about the same things and we're having the same conversations over and over again and nobody's listening to us. And my response to that is, is when people feel disheartened and people feel like they can't, you know, they don't, they don't want to do this anymore. It's not because they can't be bothered. It's not because they're not brave. It's not because, you know, they don't have the energy or the enthusiasm. It's because we're tired. We face so much in our general lives that you adding that extra layer of, of fight and need for perseverance and need for energy and need for enthusiasm and need for commitment is draining It it just, it just is, and I think we can very quickly, as a community, paint a picture that you know we can do anything we want, and you know we can achieve everything that we want to achieve. I sit here and say there are things that I'm very well aware are never going to happen for me. I'm never going to run a marathon. It's just not going to happen. I'm never going to raise forty grand by climbing Everest. I wish I could. It's never going to happen, and I'm never going to be able to. But just because there are things that i can't do that the average person could potentially do with their life does not mean that i'm a failure or i'm not good enough sometimes actually and it's about recognizing this as as a disabled person that my achievement level actually needs to come down a little bit and not be as high as climbing mount everest but that's all right sometimes as i was saying you know getting out of bed and just showing up for myself and having a shower and getting myself dressed for the day is my accomplishment. And I showed up for myself, and I did it for myself. And I achieved that. And I'm proud of myself for doing that when I really, really didn't want to. But because society sets such a standard of what's achieving and what's not, we fall into that cyclical argument with ourselves of internalised ableism of constantly saying, not disabled enough to ask for help. Like, that person's way worse than me. I'm fine. Like, oh my gosh, I could be a quadriplegic, And then that's putting that individual down by that statement. You put yourself down, and you put everybody else down who falls into that category. And we need to stop doing that. We need to recognize that all of us are different. You know, even if I meet somebody that's got the same condition as me, they haven't got the same experiences as me. You know, I recognize some of the privileges that I've had in my life. I recognise the privileges that I have of being a white woman and how that's made my disability journey different from another individual who isn't a white woman. And so I recognise the privileges that I've had. But that doesn't mean that my journey hasn't been difficult. And I think that's something that we need to keep remembering is that everybody's journey is different and everybody's experiences are different. So our ally in communities need to look at us individually and our individual needs and our individual adjustments that we need, not looking at us as one giant category which society has placed us in when actually the commonality between us, there's not a lot of it. It's just we all have adopted the same identity. So for, for to reduce ableism and, and look at adjustments, we have to look at people on an individual basis. You cannot just roll out standardised processing. It doesn't work.
0: And you said something really really um outstanding there and and the way that i'll i'll kind of define it is that you need to set your own level of success yes so and that's not just not be ashamed of it yeah not be ashamed of, of what it is that you believe whether you're disabled or not whatever you believe is your level of success so that might be the um so if i use myself as an example for me my level of, of success is that my family is happy and enjoying life and that we're creating good memories that is and my it's fundamental beautiful
1: and amazing it's beautiful and amazing and we shouldn't compare ourselves to again normal people because if you look at those normal people's lives they're striving for something else they're looking at another group of people they're looking at the super rich and going you know I want I want this and we're looking at the super rich thinking you always want more you always want what you don't have you know if you live in a nice two-bed house right what's next we've got to get the three bed we've got to get the four bed how are we going to get there how are we what we're saving constantly and by doing that the enjoyable things are passing you by and this applies to not just disabled people it also applies to people that aren't disabled is look at your life and work out your values. What do you want from life? Do you want a happy and healthy family? Do you yourself want to achieve X? Whether it's, I don't know, I want to do some art this week and I want to draw something and I want to be creative and I want to explore that side of my brain. That's an achievement. Set your own goals because everybody is doing it where they constantly feel like they're not good enough. It's a massive problem in our society. We're constantly worried about how we look, how much money we have, what we're doing with our day-to-day lives, how people perceive us. It's not just a disabled person thing, but for us, it's so much stronger because we perceive ourselves as being behind the starting line. Everybody else starts here and we're starting from all the way back here. So actually what we're achieving for is just everybody else's standard. And it's not, we're just doing things in a different pathway. I'm not, disabled i'm just differently abled i'm just doing things differently and that's fine and you know if you look at the percentages of disabled people it's it's 20 percent In my opinion it's a lot higher than that because a lot of people with men, long-term mental health conditions don't define themselves as disabled and that's fine yeah. and it's not to push the identity upon anybody if they if they don't want to use that identity that's fine or older people that have got reduced mobility they don't define themselves as disabled they define themselves as old Again, prefacing by saying, you know not pushing an identity label upon anybody, but actually, if you look at the amount of people that are f- actually technically falling into that racket of disabled, you're looking at uh, millions and millions of people that normality means the mean average. Well, if you've got you know forty percent of people that don't conform to the normal normal average, can you actually tell me what normal means? because normal yeah. means taking the general. And clearly, there isn't a general if statistics are that high, so we're all striving for something which actually doesn't exist and society's made it up. So I think that's a really important thing to remember.
0: Yeah, definitely. and and particularly in the age that we are in now, which is mm-hmm. very much an age of technology and of of yeah. social media and of of just always being on, um, in particular being able to access anything you want at any time you want which is in many many ways a wonderful thing it's great that that you've got such such good access but equally it's creating uh this image of a perfect lifestyle that in all probability doesn't even exist for that person
1: it's not true it's it's such a people put on the internet their best bits because that's what they want to show people and I think my stronger advice is if you see something on Instagram on LinkedIn on TikTok that makes you feel a certain way or triggers you in some way block it don't even think about it just do it flag it block it get rid of it unfollow them whatever it may be and actively go out there and find the content creators that have can bring value to your life whether it's them talking about something disability related or not it doesn't matter but actively pick up your phone pick up your laptop you know get out whatever device it is that you use to access social media and consciously make the decision of what you want to look at because you know, I'm guilty of it. I can scroll through TikTok for blooming hours and not realise I've done it. And, you know, by the time I'm sat there an hour later and I'm watching sand being crushed and I think, how on earth did I get to this point? But the point is, is because I'm not consciously making a decision about what I want to see and who I want to look at and who I want to follow and the messages that I want to absorb. And FYPs for you pages are going to fill your phone with what that social content wants you to see it wants you to see the shops the adverts people living the perfect lives so you go out and buy it because they're making money by doing it focus yourself and and think consciously what do I want to absorb because a lot of the time some of the things you're absorbing you don't even realize you're doing it because you're scrolling so quickly because social media is so fast now like get on LinkedIn and and follow what people are saying it's much more of a conversational piece than it is just looking at a photo because even I look at some disabled influencers, you you know, are wearing gorgeous clothes, and are stunning, and every day seem to be out and about living their lives in their wheelchairs with no problems, and their lives look amazing, and then I sit and think to myself, oh god, like that's just never going to be me, it's never going to happen for me, why, why can she do it, and I can't, and that's in no way to take away from her life, but it's me sitting there consciously saying, I want to see that, because I find it Beneficial for myself because it, it shows me actively that I can do that when I want to be able to do it, but I don't have to do it exactly how she's doing it. I don't have to feel like I have to be doing that in that quantity. Because I guarantee you, behind the scenes, you know, they've taken five pictures in different outfits all on the same day and posted it to make it look like they're out every day. Yeah. It's it's such a lie, social media. And the more aware of that we are, and the more conscious we are about the social media that we're absorbing, the better.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I try and deliberately um, put stuff on that <laughs> is not. Cause if if I'm having a really good day, if I'm out experiencing stuff, I don't take photos of it because mm. I'm enjoying it. That's not what my life is yeah, built around. Really. Yeah. Um, whereas the stuff that you'll see me either post on LinkedIn, which, which tends to be... Um, around kind of disability or mental health um, or this podcast um, and then um, across kind of Instagram mainly um, is really (laughs) mundane, Mm -hmm. Um, just ordinary stuff because I don't care if I've got a following of 200 people or 200,000 people doesn't bother me in the slightest. I don't need that validation in my life that lots of people like things that that I'm doing because they don't see what I'm doing. Mm. It's such a, and such that's a purposeful. snippet. Such yeah. a
1: snippet. And, you know, we shouldn't set our expectations of life based on someone's two minutes where that photo has been taken and probably been taken 60, 70 times before they got the one they wanted. Mm. And it's very easy. I think, especially as a woman, to feel like we have to look a certain way and yeah. conform to, to what society thinks is beautiful. And this is something I have really, and it always gets me a bit emotional talking about it, is something I have really, really struggled with my entire life. I have something also called Marfan syndrome. And if you know anything about Marfan syndrome, you know that visually... It makes you very tall and very skinny. I think I hit six foot one when I was about 13. And as you can imagine, being stick thin and six foot one, age 13, you know, and you haven't hit puberty yet, it's it's an awkward time. And I was just sort of sitting there absolutely ripping into myself, being like, boys are never going to fancy me. I look really weird. I can't find clothes that fit. You know, even now I sit here as an engaged woman in my early 20s, I still sit here and I... I'm constantly berating myself at how I look, because I have such a, I don't know if I will ever defeat that, but I know I'm getting better at just accepting that I look a certain way, because it's genetically how I am, nothing I can do is going to change the way I look. And instead of sitting there and beating myself up about it, as soon as I start accepting it, I can then learn to deal with it and process it and, and find a harmonious relationship with myself. And as a disabled community we can't expect other people to think a certain way about us if we don't even think that way ourselves we can't promote you know an education of don't think we look different because there's no such thing as normal looking don't think we, if we don't believe that ourselves and that's something that i think we need to work on as a community as well as working on it with our allies
0: it's it's the old adage of beauty is in the is in the eye of the beholder yeah. It's not entirely true that beauty is in the is in the eye is in the eye of the person, the individual. Yeah. You can be someone that is considered by the general um, public as being the most amazingly beautiful person. Angelina Jolie springs to mind. Um, so, yeah. particularly when she when she kind of seems to kind of really come out on the scene um uh in Tomb Raider she was like this this kind of pin-up model almost of what uh, what a perfect um woman might look like that's great personally I never found her attractive
1: Mm. it's this is the thing is that we we've elevated her to that place and she is an incredibly beautiful woman of course she is but that doesn't mean that everybody's gonna look like Angelina Jolie, and actually, it'd be a very boring world if we did all look like Angelina Jolie and you know actually, I'm trying to reach a place where I'm quite happy to look like celia hensman and and that's fine, and accepting that I do look a bit different, and my body is built differently, and it's it's not the standard of what a woman my age would look like, but who cares? you know who cares as a I think myself as a nice person, and I hope people think that I am a nice person. I wouldn't walk down the street and every person I see be like, don't like her nose, don't like her thighs, oh, look at her cellulite, oh, she's got bingo away. I would never do that, ever. But I think people are doing it to me. And I think we need to have a little bit more trust in other people that are, are things that, you know, I am a very tall person and people do comment on it, but people calling me tall and skinny isn't an insult. But for so long, because it's attached to my disability identity, I see it as an insult. That's how I took it was... Why, why are you mentioning it? Why, why Why? are you touching on that? Please don't say that, that's really offensive. Them calling me tall and skinny is, is not offensive, it's a description of me. But I took it as, as meaning an offence because it, the connotations that it has for me of almost reminding me that there's something genetically wrong with me. And I think when, it goes back again to what we were saying about reclaiming our identity, about what it means to be disabled and going, yeah, I am tall and skinny. You know, most women would kill to be six foot one. Inside scoops, really not fine. You can't find clothes that fit you because <laughs> the woman is about five foot four. That's not the point, is that we all, again, we want what we don't have. And yeah. I want what I, you know, I wish I was petite and tiny because that's what I thought boys liked when I was younger, getting very frank and honest. But, you know, they wanted to look like me. But, yeah. You
0: know, well, and, and the kind of Angelina Jolie point was that. So, whilst I don't find her attractive, that's just my opinion. Mm. And equally, she is obviously someone that that is very confident in her own skin, which is is the most important part of that conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if I look at myself, and particularly if I look back at photos when I was when I was thinner, because since being less mobile, guess what? I've put on a lot of weight. And I look back at myself and I think, God, I don't look like that person anymore. And that's something that I really, really struggle with. And I think we're seeing a bit of this come through in the, in the kind of male world, um, of what a male physique, um, should, should look like. Mm-hmm. You've got this slight kind of dichotomy with the dad bod, whatever that's meant to be. Cause most of the people that have got this dad bod aren't dads. Um, and yeah, you know, the kind of general the, the the general kind of super fit um almost bodybuilder type um of, of person that's that's around it doesn't matter which one you fit in it's about being comfortable in your own skin and being confident to
1: and being a nice it. person being a good person as well and one of the big things I always kind of promote is that not often do we talk about the benefits of being disabled from a individual person's perspective of being disabled means you are incredibly resilient, you're incredibly empathetic, you're incredibly hardworking, Um, we think outside the box, we approach things from different angles, we're able to resonate with people, we're very thoughtful people, because of the experiences that we've gone through, you know, I would much rather have people in my life that were like that, where that was their priority was, was being a good person, and that's in no way to say That you know, if you want plastic, you know, if you're if you're focused on your image that you're not a good person. It's to say that's what we should be focused on as a as a society. But no, we're focused on, you know, oh, she's got a tube coming out of her chest. Weird, you know, that's that's not that's not that doesn't look nice. And society has told me that that doesn't look nice. But you know, if I went up to twenty people on the street and I said, what do you think of this? Do you think it looks weird? Do you think it looks ugly? Do you think it looks disgusting? No one would say yes. Everyone would go, oh, it's just different. But no one thinks it's disgusting. They just go, oh, it's just a bit different. You know, it's not good or bad. It just is. But, you know, none of us actually believe what society are telling us, but yet it's still there. And it doesn't make it doesn't make sense in humanity's way of thinking how we've managed to do that, that it takes people to just be doing their stuff, just just living and, and doing what they're doing. Oh, and she's also disabled. You know, it's it's not my my flagship thing. Of she's disabled, and look at what she's doing. It's look at what she's doing. Oh, and she's disabled. Oh, you know, well, yeah, okay, fine.
0: Yeah, great. Next.
1: Crack on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what are you doing. Yeah. yeah.
0: I I I think we could talk about this for hours, hours, <laughs> days, um, even. Um, I think it it will come across that we're both very passionate about about the topic, which is Definitely. a really good thing um but i'm conscious um conscious of time and 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 know that you've got got other things to to get to um two questions though before before we just wrap up first of all in terms of and this is slightly inspired by my five-year-old son um but what advice would you give to your five-year-old self if you were looking back Mm
1: -hmm. that's a very good question i think the fundamental piece of advice I would give is you are your own priority. Your health and your well-being physically and mentally should be your number one priority. Not, you know, when I was five, I was prioritising, even at that young age, What is everyone else, else around me doing? Oh, they're off running, they're off playing, they're off doing this, they're off doing this. And I pushed myself to places I shouldn't have pushed myself. And because I did that, I'm now living with the consequences of having broken bones and torn tendons i no longer have opposable thumbs because i was so i had to have my thumbs splinted into absolutely straight because of all the physical activity i did when i was a child because i was just so determined that i was going to do it and i could still take part and play play and get along yeah. i wish i could go back and say to myself it doesn't matter if you can't do it it doesn't matter if you can't keep up in that race it doesn't matter if you can't go to that game or whatever your physical and mental health is your priority,
0: and always should be. Love that. Um, and then the other one um, is kind of two-parted. Mm-hmm. So we're going to have a dinner, a dinner party. Um, there's there's four chairs that, that are available. Um, so who would you have living or or dead from your past or or, or anything? So you could have met them or not but also what do you have as the meal? Um, so what, what would you what, what would you be having cooked for us?
1: So that's a real burning question, isn't it? Four people. A Very cliche. I think two of the people would be my mum and my dad. I am very privileged in the relationship that I've had with my parents and the support that they have given me. And it would be my way of sort of saying, come to my amazing dinner party. And it, just being like, I will never be able to thank them for for what they've done to me. And mum and dad, if you're listening, I know my mum's gonna cry at this. So I'm saying hi from from the past to my present mum, probably listening to this in her kitchen. Um, but they have done a lot for me. And still, age 25, my mum takes me to my appointments and has given up a lot in her life to 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 look after me. And and so is my dad working god awful hours to provide for us and things like that. Yeah. Two other people. One person I would absolutely love to speak to would be Florence Nightingale yeah. and the reason is 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 you know she's almost accredited with birthing modern day nursing and and what it means to be a nurse and and to be that kind of volunteer to society and I think it would just be absolutely fascinating to hear from her how she feels about being such a figurehead for so many nurses and and healthcare workers around the country, that I think she'd be a really interesting person to speak to. And then, oh gosh, David Bowie would be my last one, just because yeah, okay. he was such a social standards breaker. And I think you know he did a lot for a lot of people. Where he didn't focus on gender, you know, gender bending was the time that was used, uh, the the phrase that was used at that time, and. He broke down so many social standards without actually saying anything about it particularly. He just did his own thing and people accepted it and people loved it. And he didn't talk about neurodiversity and he didn't talk about how he identified as a gender or a sexuality particularly. He just did him. And I think that's so beautiful and I wish you know more people were doing that now. Um, so yeah, th- those would be my four people. And what would we have to eat? This is the wrong question to ask me is I don't eat or drink, but I do have a dream menu that my first course would always be a red onion and goat's cheese tartlet. Oh God, absolutely, with some mixed nuts. Um, My main course would be one of my mum's Christmas lunches, unbeatable. And everyone says that about their mum, but Christmas lunch, unbeatable. And then my dessert would probably be, ooh, can I have a trio of desserts? (laughs) Can I have a, a little cheesecake, a little brownie? and then like a pavlova or something doused with a nice lashing of education about ableism <laughs> all over <that>. the top <laughs> yeah,
0: sprinkled, sprinkled over
1: mm-hmm.
0: brilliant um sounds like a good a good party to be at um <laughs> uh, thank you so much um this has been a wonderful conversation i've uh, i've thoroughly enjoyed it um and i'm sure we will carry on the conversation too. Um, I always send my guests away uh, with with three words, with love, compassion, uh, and kindness. So I'll send that your way.
1: Thank you for having me on as well. i thoroughly enjoyed it. And I hope anybody that's listening or or comes across this takes away something about being proud of of who you are and and your identity that you have. And as disabled people, we need to reclaim the word and, and spin it to be the positive that it is.
0: Definitely. Amazing. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, thank you, friends. That's all we've got time for today. I'm sure you have enjoyed uh, today's episode. And if you did, please make sure you rate uh, the episode and the show's five stars on a platform you might be listening on and of course please share your own stories and your own um, kind of th- thoughts and feelings of the episodes in the reviews you can also find me um, on I am Gavin Clark and that's Clark with an E over on Instagram and you can search for the safe place uh, on there too it's a safe place podcast but for now I'll send you away with love kindness and compassion Thanks soon.